Point of view. You're walking alone in the city in an area that is better suited for daylight hours. It's raining and there's a group of people behind you, closing in on your personal space, catcalling, and yelling for your attention. You can feel the pit in your stomach and your skin feels electrified as your fight or flight instincts begin to kick in. At that moment, an older gentleman who looks like someone's grandfather pulls up and offers you a ride in his dry, warm car. What do you do? This was the exact choice faced by just one of John Jamelski's victims, and she chose wrong. She got into the car and soon found out why John Jamelski became known as the Syracuse Dungeon Master. I'm Marina. With me, I have my best friend, Laura, and this is Grim. chills you gave me goosebumps i knew you were gonna like it i knew it and you like the like point it of- no. Well- no 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 let's be clear <laughs> no appreciate it appreciate yes okay yes um so this week we're talking about the syracuse dungeon master oh. you may have noticed it's just laura and i tonight colby's on a break this week um colby usually reins us in so this next hour may just be laura and i wheeze laughing back and forth but um we'll do our best to keep it together <laughs> Before we start, I want to give a big shout out and thank you to our newest Patreons. First up, we have Jocelyn S. Woo! Jocelyn! We love you, Jocelyn. Thank you. And we also have Dana F. Woo! Dana, our girl. We love you, Day. Thank you. you. Thank you so much, guys. Our love for our gremlins is free as always, but if you want your own shout out, want to support our efforts to deliver you the best content possible and want some cool bonuses along the way, check out our Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com and search Grim colon a true crime podcast. Right now we have three Patreon bonus episodes available for our two highest tiers. So if you can't get enough Grim, check it out. On to the show. This week, I'm going to tell you about John Jamelski, also known as the Syracuse Dungeon Master, the Boogeyman of Syracuse, and the Ariel Castro of Syracuse, which, yikes, if those nicknames don't clue you in into how awful this guy is, I don't know what will. Um, But if you already want to start out laughing when you told me you were doing this case, I just wrote down on my post-it, John J., and so from then on, I was thinking of John, John Jacob, Jacob Jingle, yeah. Jingle Schmidt. Yeah. <laughs> very different. Yeah. It's very different. Yeah. His name is not my name. No. No. <laughs> so my case this week comes as a listener suggestion from my cousin, Pam. Hey, girl. Hey, thank you for being a gremlin. And thanks for the case suggestion, because it's really messed up. Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Pam. <laughs> for this case, I relied on an all that's interesting article titled The Bone Chilling Story of John Jamelski, the Syracuse Dungeon Master by Neil Patmore, as well as various articles from Syracuse.com, a YouTube video from First News with Keeler in the Morning, including an interview with one of the victims, a New York Post article by Joe McGurk, various articles from CNN and other local news channels. And last but not least, I also read chapter 11 of Nigel Cawthorn's book Against Their Will, which is dedicated to this case. Oof. No joke, this case is straight out of a horror movie and the photos that I will post to our Instagram will make you shudder. Ugh. This is already giving me almost toy box killer, like just depravity and 
I'm I'm very I'm very stressed out by your opener. Yes. Which we didn't really talk too much about, but I most definitely would have gotten in the car, yes. which I assume was the incorrect decision. It was the wrong decision, yes. <sighs> yeah. That's awful. So I guess this entire case comes with like a similar toy box yeah. killer warning. It involves kidnapping, uh, sexual assault. If you're claustrophobic, you're not going to like it either. Just so just be warned. It's it's a bad case. So this podcast will now just be Marina. Uh, <laughs> Laura, I'll see left. you guys later. <laughs> yeah, that's why Colby's not on. She's like, I don't want anything to do with this. It's solved. I don't want it. <laughs> it's just a monologue of me wheeze laughing for an hour. So I don't know if you guys signed on to that, but I'm here for you. <laughs> Usually I start with the background information on the victims because they're the most important people in these stories. But in this case, very little information is known about the victims, including most of their names, probably both because of some of their ages at the time of their victimization, as well as the crimes involved. So instead, I'll give you a background on the dungeon master himself. John Thomas Jamelski was an only child born in Fayetteville, New York on May 9th, 1935. He was made fun of in grade school and was given the nickname germs due to his terrible acne, which he's a piece of shit. So I don't really feel that bad, but that's like so sad and mean for him. It is. I wonder if they called him Johnny germs. (laughs) (laughs) I only saw germs, but that's see, you could be a mean child. (laughs) Sorry, Sorry, dude. (laughs) He was withdrawn and was an academic underachiever showing an interest only in history. He graduated from his local high school in 1953 and went to college at his father's encouragement. His father was a horologist and collected antique clocks, so John followed in his footsteps, getting a degree from Morrisville State College in watchmaking. That's actually kind of (laughs) cool. That's really interesting. Sorry. (laughs) I feel like it's not a degree that's used all that often. No. I mean, using his degree in watchmaking to its fullest extent, he worked at grocery stores and then as a handyman and carpenter. (laughs) Okay, the handyman, maybe, the carpenter, maybe, but I feel like, you know, he could probably make some watches. (laughs) But he was just a regular blue collar guy. He married a school teacher named Dorothy Richmond in 1959, and the couple had three sons together. I found out one is now a college professor and another one is a high school principal. So I'd say he did all right by them. Mm Mm-hmm. The family lived in a neighborhood of Syracuse at 7070 Highbridge Road in DeWitt. Although a blue-collar worker, John was actually a multimillionaire. He had convinced his father to invest in the stock market when it was booming in the late 1950s and early 1960s and received a large inheritance when his father died. Wow. John also made some good investment choices himself in property in Nevada and California that padded his bank account further. He also sold a plot of land behind his house for development. But you would never know how much money John actually had because he was apparently an absolute cheapskate who would fight you for a nickel. The developer who bought the land behind him built nice big homes that overlooked his little ranch that fell into disrepair and the junkyard that he called his lawn. Oof. John lived modestly and was a compulsive hoarder, saving bottles, cans, and other trashy treasures in his home. I'm not quite sure why he saved as many bottles and cans as he did, because he also scoured the neighborhood for those items to return by the thousands for the deposit money. That's crazy. He even went so far as to collect bottles and cans that were non-redeemable in New York and would drive to surrounding states to return them. (laughs) Was that like by the 70s at this point? Like, isn't gas really expensive at that point, buddy? (laughs) Not as expensive as it is now, but apparently worth it. Mm. 
He was so cheap. The shelves in his bedroom were actually the shelves from a refrigerator that he nailed into the wall. <laughs> Classy. That was the exact word that came into my it's mind. It's giving me Catherine Knight vibes. Yes. Yes. Is there a lawnmower in the house? <laughs> Hacksaws and blades on the wall? There probably were. Probably. Ugh. Oh, I forgot what this case was for a moment. John would make the local librarian save him coupons, and on one occasion when the librarian forgot, he made her go dig them out of a pile of recyclables in the janitor's office. He was known locally as the disheveled man collecting bottles and junk. Yikes. So none of them knew he had money at all. They would have assumed he had no money, right? I would, yeah, I would never guess he had money looking at him. John's three sons grew up and moved out of the home. In 1988, John's life took a turn. His wife became very ill with cancer and was bedridden. Due to her condition, she could no longer cater to John's sexual needs, and this is where everything goes off the rails. John began wearing designer jeans and sporting a sleek ponytail around town. Oh. For onlookers, it appeared that John was going through a midlife crisis. What was actually happening was much worse. Rather than have a casual affair like a normal sleazebag, John decided that he would kidnap women and keep them as prisoners. Oh, no. His first victim was a 14-year-old Native American girl that he abducted on September 17th, 1988. I'm going to call her Kirsten, but I do not believe that that's her real name. On the date she was taken, John was out cruising the streets of Syracuse when he saw Kirsten walking and drinking with friends. He approached them and persuaded Kirsten to get in the car. Kirsten's friends told her not to, but she did anyways. Uh, Why? I think we've previously talked about feeling invincible as a teenager and making bad decisions. So, you know, maybe he offered to buy her more alcohol. It could be something as benign as that. How old was she again? 14. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oof. John, who was 53 at the time, said we were going to have sex. There was no doubt. Oh, you can't. On the podcast, you can't see it, but I am making a face. You are cringing. John took her home and chained her up before deciding to keep her in a small well behind his mother's house. Kirsten woke up naked in the well, which must have been so cold in September in Syracuse. Oh my gosh. Also, I would literally perish from fear being kept in a well with Samara Samara touching Mm -hmm. my foot. Yeah. Yeah. Kirsten's family reported her missing, but the police weren't that concerned since Kirsten had run away before. The only difference is Kirsten always told her friends where she was. And this time they were all calling her house asking where she was, but no one knew. And they saw her get in this car. Right. Mm. Keeping Kirsten in the well turned out to be inconvenient for John's plans. So he decided to upgrade. And that's when he built a concrete dungeon under his house. John told his neighbors that he was building a bomb shelter, which made sense to them at the time since the Cold War was ending. But John was known to be a little bit strange. He brought in heavy machinery and dug a giant hole in his yard, lined it all with concrete, and then covered it back up. The bomb shelter, aka dungeon, was 8 feet high, 14 feet long, and 12 feet wide. It was connected to the east wall of his basement via an 8-foot tunnel that was accessible through a small steel door hidden behind a storage shelf. So the entire quote-unquote bomb shelter aka dungeon was totally separate but underground only accessible by a tunnel yes that alone there could be puppies and kittens in there and that alone would skeeve me out yeah because it's the claustrophobia Uh aspect of it suffocating and being in your like a tomb yeah Mm, don't like it no 
At the end of the tunnel was another locked door and a three-rung ladder that led you down into the dungeon. Even further down? Mm Mm-hmm. There were two rooms and no windows, and the only electricity came from an extension cord run from the garage. That cannot be to code. <laughs> that is <laughs> most, not to code. Most definitely no, not. No, the town would not approve that no, permit. No, you need some conduit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that may be marginally better than a well, but I still have claustrophobia and the mm-hmm. heebie-jeebies just thinking about it. Definitely. The dungeon contained a foam mattress on top of plastic serving trays, and a makeshift toilet made from a seatless chair on top of a bucket. Well, you didn't think he was like going to spend money on this. On plumbing. Right? Yeah. You wouldn't put plumbing no. in there with your millions of dollars. Exactly. The shower, if you can call it that, was just as jankety. It consisted of a garden hose in a stained bathtub kept on top of a wooden deck. Is this the movie Saw? It is very Saw-like. The pictures are Ugh. very sketchy and disturbing. I do not like them. There was no plumbing. So the water would sit stagnant on the cement floor, making the conditions in the dungeon musty and moldy. Actually, the bathroom in that Saw movie is better. Because that's exactly what I'm picturing It's better. Yeah, it's better than this. Once completed, John moved Kirsten from the well to his new bunker. One day, she said she just woke up in there, where she was kept for another two and a half years. Oh, I wanted you to say days. No. Oh, no. Two and a half years. But she... Okay, I'll let you talk, but I'm realizing that getting any account of this means she got out? She's alive. Okay. In addition to the absolutely deplorable conditions, Kirsten was subjected to sexual assaults on a daily basis. And despite the fact that there was no way for her to escape, she was chained inside the dungeon. She was only provided one meal a day, usually crackers and water... But eventually, John upgraded to Kool-Aid. John forced her to write letters to her family, explaining that she was okay, but was never allowed to say where she was. John had a picture of her younger brother, her family, and her house, and he threatened to kill them to keep her compliant. What a poor, poor girl. I know. I can't even imagine. Her family got one of the letters in late September, postmarked from New York. It said she missed them and would be home in a month. Her family put an ad in the New York Post telling her to come home and that they weren't angry at her. They even put a phone number that she could call, but they obviously got no response. In December, Kirsten was allowed to leave a message on a friend's answering machine saying that she would be home soon. The letters and messages came from different places each time, and Kirsten was even crying in one of the audio messages. She was submissive because what else could she do? Well, and crackers and Kool-Aid for two and a half years. Yeah, she's you would have weak. absolutely no muscle mass, no nothing. Right. You'd be skin and bones. And that was probably the point. Yep. Oh. And John started to believe his own bullshit that the two were actually just in a consensual relationship. Ew. He even started bringing her gifts. In 1991, John decided to take Kirsten on a trip. One of John's sons drove them to the airport for a trip to Lake Tahoe in California. Apparently, Kirsten was hooded and handcuffed while in the car, but John's son said he didn't see the handcuffs. What about the hood? So John told his son that Kirsten's parents had asked him to look after her because she had a weight problem. So she'd stay with him until she lost some weight, which, I mean, that checks out because I'm sure Kirsten had really packed on some pounds from her single cracker Kool-Aid meal every day. Wouldn't you have said exactly the opposite? Yeah. So he was saying that um, the hood was because he was taking her on a surprise trip. Uh Uh-huh. It checks out. Seems legit. Awful. 
In Lake Tahoe, John and Kirsten hung out around town and even visited a casino, which was so out of character for Scrooge Jamelski. After a week in Lake Tahoe, John freed Kirsten. I saw this go a few ways. One was that John gave Kirsten a ticket back to Syracuse and sent her home by herself. The other is that they returned together and John left her outside the Syracuse airport. Either way, she was free after being held captive for about three years total, released after she had already turned 17. Oh my God. Once released, she made no attempt to report John to the authorities and told her family that she had simply run away from home. She kept it all a complete secret. She must have been absolutely terrified and feared too much for hers and her family's safety. I'm sure, especially because he kept saying he knew their house and he had pictures of everyone. But why did he let her go? Was he bored with her? Or I don't understand. I mean, I'm glad that he didn't kill her, but I don't understand. I think he was just ready to move on. Jeez. After he released Kirsten, John either behaved for about four years or whomever he held in the interim never came forward as a victim. His next victim was a 14-year-old Latina girl that we'll call Jackie, which is not her name. I made it up to make it easier to discuss her. She was not taken until March 1995. John was again out cruising the streets of Syracuse when he saw Jackie. He pulled up next to her and asked her for help delivering a package, which sounds like a really bad pickup line. That reminds me of like, hey, kid, I lost my little dog. Can you help me find it? Yeah, so sketchy. For some reason, she agreed, and he brought her to his home. John lured this poor girl into the actual dungeon, saying that she needed to grab the package for him, and once inside, he shut the door behind her, leaving her in the pitch dark. Oh, oh my God. No light. Can you imagine? Like, no light whatsoever. I didn't even think about that. Awful. He somehow persuaded her to take some pills that knocked her out, and she woke up naked and chained to the wall. (gasps) When John returned, Jackie fought back, punching him and spitting on him, but it made no difference in the end. John showed her pictures of her home and her family and said he would kill them if she didn't do as he asked. He also scared her and told her that he had sold other girls into sexual slavery abroad. Mm. Like Kirsten, she had no choice but to submit to his daily assaults. Once a week, he hosed her down in the bathtub with cold water. Like Kirsten, her family had reported her missing, but she had a history of drug use and her file ended up at the bottom of the pile. It's so unfair. It is unfair. Jackie was kept for some time between 15 months and two years. I saw both time spans in my research. On the day she was finally released, John took her out blindfolded and just dropped her off at her mother's apartment. Also, I was thinking about for him to have known who her family was and have pictures and all that. He must have, I mean, it it doesn't necessarily have to have been weeks, but he had done research and picked this person. So I actually think I was thinking about this as I was writing my notes. And I think the most likely scenario is that he happened upon these girls and Mm -hmm. he chose them. And then he saw the missing persons report reports on the news and then he looked up their information from there. Oh, oh! I thought that's he, my guess. You might be right because I thought he had the pictures and everything about their families immediately. But if it was not that first day, then that makes perfect sense. I don't think he had them the first day, and I. It also it just seemed like it was random mm-hmm. that he would just be like out 
cruise in the streets and see who he could pick up so he wouldn't know who they were. So that was my thought that yeah. like he's researching it after he gets their name and information from the missing persons posters and mm-hmm. and news articles and whatnot. That makes more sense because I got that same vibe. It's not like he picked someone and then followed their every habit and move. It was just, you know, uh, unfortunate circumstances. Yeah. To wrong, say the least. Wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. Jackie reported what had happened to her to her mother, and they both went to the police. Jackie gave a description, but she was still so frightened. She withheld information, and her stories were inconsistent and mm. seemed to be ever-changing. So police dropped the investigation. I'm sure they were just not trained at that time to know that that's a sign right. that someone has been abused or tortured in this case. Right. And for weeks after her return, Jackie's mother saw an older white man driving by their house, staring at Jackie. When she asked who it was, Jackie told her it was the man that had kidnapped her. But they were both too afraid to report it. I I, I literally cannot put myself in that situation, so I don't know what I would do. It is just insane to me that I would rather not report anything than tell the police that that's who it was. I feel like... I feel like my go-to would be the police, but I've never been in that situation, so it's hard to say for sure. Right. Shortly thereafter, on August 30th, 1997, John kidnapped a 53-year-old Vietnamese woman right off the street. That's a a change. It is a change. We'll call her Lynn. She was a foreign refugee who spoke little English, and John told her that he was lonely and needed a friend. Again, unclear why she would get in the car, but she did. John drove her around for a bit, but then took her to an abandoned house where he raped her. Then he drove her to his house to put her in the dungeon, tying her to a stack of flattened cardboard boxes to limit her mobility during transport. What? (laughs) And why the abandoned house first? I don't know. Maybe to just see if he liked her and wanted to keep her. Like like a test run. So fucked up. Lynn's boyfriend reported her missing for days after she was initially taken, but the police had no leads and she was a grown adult, so the investigation went nowhere per usual. As was his MO, John raped Lynn daily, but also forced her to perform menial tasks as well. He gave her a pair of bifocal glasses and made her punch holes in bottle caps and put them on a string, sort screws and nails in the dimly lit room, sew quilts, and pound metal objects with a hammer. On one occasion, she was even forced to sort large stacks of money from a duffel bag that he had thrown in there. I bet a psychologist would have a field day with him. Yeah. He seems like a real special sort of human. There is something about having control and power. I'm stating the very obvious, but... And sorting and stringing bottle caps. It must... bizarre. The first thing I think is just he just enjoys exerting power. Yeah. You know? That makes sense. And why not get a quilt out of it? It's true. That's hard work. I actually wonder if that, it seems bad, but I actually wonder if that might've been helpful for her at all. Does it pass the time? Does it let you focus on something else other than your situation? Maybe. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I would rather be doing like stringing bottle caps than I mean. staring at the wall and yeah. having absolutely nothing to do, but I can't imagine that it was that helpful. No. Because no. you just don't like, I, I, I can't even put myself in the mindset of these people. I can't even put myself just as a mental exercise into that dungeon. Oh, agreed. I just, I, I wouldn't survive 24 hours, no. let alone three years. Ironic that we're on a, that we host a, a true crime podcast because I, this will give me nightmares. Yeah. This, yeah, this one's fucked up. Mm-hmm. 
Lynn was compliant and pleasant because she was absolutely terrified. After a rape one day, she was bleeding and scared, so she was crying and asking for medical help. John hit her so hard on the side of her head, he ruptured her eardrum. She is deaf in that ear to this day. He also intimidated her by leaving a plastic skeleton in her bed that she said haunted her. Her biggest fear was that she would die in that dungeon and that her soul would be trapped down there. Oh my God. John withheld food from her as well. On one occasion, she said he gave her half of a hot dog roll and a glass of water before leaving her for two weeks. <gasps> what? She, yeah. She actually said that wasn't so bad because it was better than him being around and being beaten. How did, how, how did she even survive? I don't know. I don't know if there was, if she could get water out of the hose. Really? I don't know. Wow. When asked about Lynn, John said that he was kind to her. He said he gave her a television so she could watch shows in the evening. He said they had a lovely time together and that she'd sing him beautiful acapella songs in Vietnamese. He reflected positively on his time with Lynn, feeling as though he did her a favor. He said if they had met under normal circumstances, she would have dumped whoever she was with to be with him. Regarding her abduction, he said, I think she would look at it as a positive thing. I do. Delusional. Delusional. For sure. Lynn was ultimately held for 10 months before John dropped her off in May 1998 at a Greyhound bus station with 50 of the $70 that she had in her purse when he initially took her. <laughs> so petty. <laughs> Talk about adding insult to injury right. to steal 20 bucks from her. Right. After he held her for that long. Jeez. Lynn went right to the police, but she didn't have enough information to lead them to John. Well, yeah, because she has no idea how she got there. Mm -hmm. She has no idea where it was. Right. No information about him. What else can you say? Right. Well, she could give them a description, and she described him as a white male, 45 years old, 5 foot 8 inches, heavy build with a circular birthmark on his forehead. Oh. John was 63, average size, and did not have a birthmark. Oh. Lynn thinks the police also didn't believe her because most people who are kidnapped don't come home alive. It's a, it's a fair statistic. Right. But right, very frustrating still. John's wife died from cancer in 1999, although her living in the home clearly made no difference for John's ability to carry on his activities underground anyways. His next victim was a 26-year-old white woman named Jennifer. On May 11th, 2001... Jennifer was walking to a party and was high on LSD. This poor woman was walking in a bad part of Syracuse. It was raining, and she said there were some men behind her that were yelling obscenities and making her nervous. She said when an old white man pulled up and offered her a ride, she didn't hesitate to accept it, and John proceeded to bring her back to his dungeon. Jennifer said he used chloroform to knock her out to get her into the bunker, she said she woke up and was naked and alone in the cold, dark dungeon. And when he came to rape her the first time, she fought as hard as she could. Mm. She said she got in a few good hits and John hit her back, but Jennifer was unfazed. But then he burnt her with a cigar. Oh. Jennifer said she pounded her fist the whole time until her hands were raw. Just makes me want to cry. I, like I said, I can't even mentally put myself no, in that situation. No. I'm still stuck on, cause that's what you were referring to in the opening, right? Mm -hmm. I'm still stuck on, I really think I probably would have done the same thing. Like part of me thinks like getting into a car is really scary because they're taking you somewhere. And isn't that the rule? Like, don't ever let them take you from where you are, whoever, right. whatever it is. But in that exact scenario where I'm in a dark street, it's wet and there's people right there. 
they look scarier. So I really think I would have done the same thing. Yeah. And she was high too. So she's high. She's scared. It's raining. It's cold. It's dark. There's people behind her that are freaking her out. And this guy pulls up and he looks completely nice. He's like an old, unintimidating white man. Right. So she got in the car and it was not the right choice. She said John did not drug or sedate her again once inside the dungeon because there was nowhere to go. John raped her daily as he did the others, and he told her that if she refused to have sex with him, that would just add on to the time that he kept her. During her incarceration in the dungeon, Jennifer was told by John that there were news reports that her family was looking for her, but that they would never find her. She'd been reported missing, but police came up with nothing. John told her that he was actually part of a police sex slave ring and took orders from his bosses, even flashing a sheriff's badge that he had found on the streets. Jennifer said that he would show her passports of women that he said were in the sex slave ring. He said his part involved drugging women, putting them in a wheelchair, and bringing them to whoever was buying them. He said that she was supposed to be sold for $30,000 to someone overseas, but that he was going to save her. She just had to stay in the dungeon and have sex with him every day. Obviously, that part's fabricated, but I'm curious how he ended up with passports of women. I've, I don't know. Like, he's like a junk collector, so sure. I don't know oh, if he's sure. like digging through the garbage. Maybe. I, though I feel like they shred those. I don't know. Yeah, I just wonder if there's like a shred, no pun intended, of truth to... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, I realize he used the same word. I wonder if there's any any bit of truth to him not selling women, but why would he have passports? I don't know. It's not an important point, but it bothered me. He could have also falsified documents. Oh, true. I guess, yeah, that was the fake um, sheriff's badge and all that. So I guess. Right. He found that on the street. So he could just be making, if you were in the dark dungeon and you were scared to death, like I wouldn't be like, this doesn't have the official seal of the United (laughs) States of America. Let me see the holograph. Yeah. This is looking sketchy in these dim overhead dirt lights. (laughs) John fed her only once a day, but he did feed her whatever she requested. So that was an upgrade. He allowed her to bathe in the jankety shower bathtub once every two weeks. He also gave her a cable TV, which was probably left over from his kindness to Lynn. Like the others, Jennifer said she was forced to become mostly friendly with him in order to survive, but also to avoid punishments. She said to punish her, he would burn her with a cigar or shut off all the lights so that it was absolutely pitch black. That actually gives me chills. And that's like straight sensory deprivation because every sound would be muffled down there already because there's nowhere, there's nothing down there. And it's pitch, like, I can't even imagine darkness that Mm -hmm. dark. You've never Mm -hmm. seen darkness that dark in your whole life because Mm -hmm. there's always light from something, an air conditioner, like the city, like star, Mm -hmm. like you've never seen dark that dark. One of her cigar burns actually got infected and caused an abscess. Oh, poor thing. Jennifer said she was also very concerned about oxygen in the dungeon and that there was an air vent that pumped air into the bunker. He would shut that off to punish her, and she was terrified that she was going to suffocate. Jennifer said she could also hear other women screaming during her time in the dungeon, but she learned later that it was actually a recording to psychologically torment her. Oh, my God. Isn't that fucked up? Yes. I don't have any other words. This guy is a sicko. John only ever kept one victim at a time. John made her read the Bible to him every day and forced her to teach him to play poker. Jennifer said that she thought about killing him and felt that she could have likely accomplished the task, but she feared that even if she did, she would be trapped down there. 
since she didn't know what other locks or barricades were in place beyond the door. Honestly, I think that is a very smart assessment because what if there was one, I guess you'd think he has a key on him, but... I, that, that's I think, too risky i think it was coded padlocks <gasps> so i think if you killed him like you could not get out uh, the, I, my mind just went so dark in so many places of what would happen so this poor everybody woman. dies in the dungeon is oh. what happens so that yeah. was smart not to do that but slowly i think is where i was headed very slowly and she'd probably eat him oh that's very dark i told you that's when grim. i went grim really quickly that's very grim mm-hmm. all grim all the time he deserves to be eaten but that's very unfortunate but for she her. doesn't deserve to have to eat him <laughs> that is true too <laughs> it's dark okay. it's dark she also considered suicide so that john would hopefully get caught trying to dispose of her body which i love that she's wow. basically like fuck this guy like yeah. if i have to die at least he's gonna go to prison wow. but she had two children and oh. she couldn't bear the thought of her family not knowing what happened to her and she didn't want to die while she was held captive she begged to write to her family John allowed her to write to them to let them know that she was okay, but he made her say that she was in a drug rehabilitation clinic. When her family received this letter, they called every drug rehab clinic in the Rochester area based on the postmark on the envelope, but no one would confirm whether she was a patient there due to confidentiality issues. That's so frustrating. Yep. But based on the letter, the police closed her missing persons case. John decided to let Jennifer go after two months on July 7th, 2001, which was the shortest stint for all of his victims. It's probably because the abscess on her back got so bad that she could not stand up straight and it was painful for her to even move. John threw her clothes at her and told her she was going home, which Jennifer thought meant he was going to kill her. Sure. Yeah. He handcuffed her and put a hooded sweatshirt on her backwards so she couldn't see where she was going. And he drove her around for a while before dropping her off at her mother's house. John told Jennifer that if she went to the police, he would hurt her family and that they would never believe her. And he was partly right. Jennifer went to the police, but the investigation did not lead to John's arrest. The police questioned Jennifer's story, given her history with using drugs, which we already said is fucked up. But Mm -hmm. please refer to Colby's soapbox moment in the Jason Landry episode concerning the police belittling people for that reason. Absolutely. Plus one on that. Jennifer could describe the dungeon in which she was held, including that the walls had a huge peace sign and, quote, wall of thugs painted on them in graffiti. A rape kit was taken, but there was no evidence of sexual assault. John was smart enough to abstain from intercourse for several days prior to releasing his victims. That infuriates me. Piece of shit. I hate when they're smart. Yes. that's And you know what? When you were describing his history... I thought to myself, this guy is smart, which mm-hmm. is always a big problem. I feel like he should not have gotten away with it for as long as he did. Correct. But he did do some things right, which I hate. Again, I hate it when they're smart. Mm-hmm. The police also had the letter she had written saying she was fine and in rehab during the time she said that John was holding her. So they were questioning her story. Jennifer said the police thought she was making it all up because it sounded too much like the movie Silence of the Lambs. I'm guessing that they just assumed she had been on a bender, but for 56 days, she pointed out in an interview that she had two uncashed paychecks from her work during the time that she was held. If she was on a bender, wouldn't she want that money for drugs? Absolutely. Yeah. Abs- and you know what? She wouldn't be writing a letter to her family. So is she in a, on a bender or is she in drug rehab? They apparently accept both of those stories, but not right. the truth. Right. So frustrating. 
it gets more frustrating. No. Jennifer also told the police that the man that picked her up drove a tan 1974 Mercury Comet, which is very specific. It is. Police conducted a search for registered vehicles in that area and had only one hit. The vehicle they found did not match Jennifer's description, and the case was closed. The police never searched for any other year for the same make and model. John drove a tan 1975 Mercury Comet. Are you kidding me? And apparently the body style that she initially described was made from 1971 to 1977. Had they switched that one year, they would have found his vehicle. Like Jackie, after John released Jennifer, he continued to torment her. She said he would call her at work, which scared her so much she would quit her jobs. And she said it continued until he was arrested. So this guy just likes to play mind games. Absolutely. Piece of shit. Wow. Now John, free to continue his reign of terror, took his fifth and final victim in October 2002. She was a 16-year-old African-American runaway whom he held for six months. He called her Micah, although that was not her name. Again, John was cruising the streets of Syracuse when he saw her. He pulled up and she got in the car. John claims that she was actually a prostitute and that she agreed to stay with him for a price that they negotiated in the car. But Micah said that she was not taken of her own free will. John brought her to the dungeon, stripped her naked, and raped her. John shredded her clothes and said that if she tried to leave, guard dogs would kill her. Unlike the others, Micah had not been reported missing by her family, so no one was looking for her. As soon as I heard runaway, my heart sank. Yeah. Though other people looking for the other people didn't seem to really make a difference, but it's still heartbreaking that no one's looking for you. Yep. Initially, John treated her the same as the others, assaulting her daily and playing mind games. John told her that he would let her go on November 17th, but he didn't. He told her that his bosses said he couldn't let her go until she had more sex with him. Then he told her he'd let her go on Christmas, but again, didn't. Over the course of Micah's captivity, this young girl suffered through the daily rapes and had the presence of mind to convince John that they could be friends, so much so that he developed an affection for her. She was the only victim allowed out of the dungeon and was even allowed to sleep in John's bedroom, which he had bars on the windows just in case anyways. Yeah, that's just, that's normal. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's how you decorate. Right. She was convincing enough that he felt confident to take her to karaoke bars, to pool halls, and on his weekly trip to return bottles and cans. At karaoke one night, she actually got up on stage and sang three songs to a crowd of over a hundred people. She said nothing and didn't try to run away, so John trusted her implicitly at this point. I I can't decide if... Okay, so first of all, I definitely wouldn't have been that thoughtful and no been able to do any of that so nope. obviously that's the case but I, I i probably would think that saying something in front of 100 people that i'm safe like i think i would have broken then but i think she had way more foresight to say like i know that's going to make him trust me maybe he'll leave me alone you know what i mean right i just wouldn't think that i'd be like oh there's enough people here help me you know i know but if <sighs> I would do exactly what you're saying, where I would just freak out and start screaming and be like, he he took me and helped me and yep. with a hundred people there. 
but she really, she was playing the long game. But in reality, and I know we'll hear what happened, but I'm sure that was smarter because if she had said something then, she's depending, he's there. She's depending on people believing her. Whereas if she's able to escape without him there, she's escaped. And then if people believe her, fine, but you're not dependent on it. Right. So, but I I would never have thought all that through. No, but it's definitely true that that, obviously made him trust her Mm -hmm. more like if Mm -hmm. she didn't say anything then she's good to go Mm -hmm. like they're just boyfriend and girlfriend on april 7th 2003 on one of their outings to return cans and bottles micah asked john if she could call a church to find out service times john agreed because he had no reason to doubt her at this point and also john was very religious and went to church every day which i will never quite understand the psychology behind hyper-religious people becoming Mm -hmm. the craziest criminals ever Mm -hmm. do not understand (laughs) lori vallow (laughs) right like just off the rails Mm -hmm. off the rails instead of calling a church micah called her sister and told her all about john her captivity the dungeon and the rapes After they got off the phone, her sister called the number back and got to an employee who she convinced to call 911 so that they could trace the call to their location because the sister didn't know exactly where she was. Police were able to apprehend Micah and John at a nearby car dealership. That also just gave me full goosebumps because so many things had to happen correctly for that to happen. Right. Her sister had to pick up, first of all, and then believe her. And who knows if she had been in contact with her, if she was a runaway, maybe she was still in contact. Then the employee had to pick up. Right. It needed to go through, had to believe them. The police had to believe them. It's just so many steps. And it all went right. Right. It just all went right for her that day. just gave me huge chills. After John was apprehended by the police, he engaged in a casual conversation with the officer who was driving him to the police station. He said of Micah that she had moved into his house and that they lived together, just the two of them and his dog. John told the officer how much he liked this woman and said, we have a lot in common. The only thing that she likes that I don't is blue cheese. (laughs) He told the officer how they went to bars together and how when they get on the dance floor, everybody's like, wow, look at them. They're having so much fun. Then everybody starts giving John high fives. I'm sure nobody's looking at the fact that he's 65 years old and she's 16. Yeah, nobody's looking at that. No. Though, I don't know, maybe some people do give him high fives. I don't know. People people are gross. Yeah. John said he planned to bring her to his 50th high school reunion. He knew, though, that they would never get married because one day she would want to be with someone her own age. And John said, you know, that's all right. I'm just going to have as much fun for now as I can. John told police that he thought the girl was actually 18 and that he was planning a 19th birthday party for her next month. John asked, is this a problem that I'm so much older than her? I'd just like to get this straightened out so I can go home. I'd like to be with her tonight if possible. He said they had plans to go bowling. What world are you living in, sir? And and back to him being smart, he very much knew that she had to be over 18 and how convenient that he mentioned that. Oh my God. Well, the age of consent in New York was 17, but but still. Still, yeah. I just, uh, I, I can't decide if he was trying to be smart and like downplay it or if he genuinely believed that garbage in his mind. I think most of the garbage he believed, but I think the birthday was intentional based Probably. on all his other actions. He's like, we're cool, right? Can I have yeah, her back? Exactly. Police Ugh. are like, no, thank you. No, we're going to keep so. her. I we're going to keep her. Thank you. So when police got to John's house, there was a 10 foot pole in his front yard with a replica of a human head on it and crossbeams with chains dangling from them. Sounds fine if it was October, but it was April. (laughs) Not a great front yard decoration. Mm, No. 
The police described the inside of the home as a prison with bars on the windows. The house was full of garbage, books, half-eaten food, broken appliances, all of this stacked right up to the ceiling. The closets were filled too, but they were neatly stacked with tissue boxes, cereal boxes, and other cooking items, again, from floor to ceiling. In the basement, there were over 13,000 bottles organized on rows of metal shelves by color, brand, and size. I just want to know who had to count all 13,000. <laughs> the same person that had to count the strands of hair that were found in the Helicraft yep, episode. Exactly. Behind one of those shelves, they found the metal door that led to the dungeon. Police said it was dark and smelled horrible, like something from medieval times. Can you imagine? This reminds me of Ed Gein, actually, when the police walked in and just had no idea what they were about to encounter. It's like you're walking into a horror movie. Yeah. I just can't yes. imagine that. Wow. I can't imagine that. No. Once inside the dungeon, police saw the graffiti on the walls, including the saying Wall of Thugs, proving Jennifer's story correct. There was a small clock radio on top of an old small refrigerator, the bathtub, and the mattress. Among John's files, they found a series of calendars for each of his victims where they were forced to mark each date with a corresponding letter for an activity, including an S for when they were raped, a B for when they showered, and a T for when they brushed their teeth. Did they just submit that straight into evidence and that was it? That was the trial? So fucked up. He didn't Seriously. have a trial. Spoiler oh. alert. Oh. These calendars covered the 15-year time span in which John was imprisoning women in his bunker. 15 years. Unreal. They also found several videotapes of women from the bunker. And the police and the state said that John was an evil collector, including collecting women of all ages and ethnicities. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you noticed, but his victims were Native American, Latina, Vietnamese, white, and African American. Mm -hmm. And ranged from 14 to 53, 53. right? Sick fuck. One of the videos from a local news station said that in 2002, around 16,000 cars drove by John's house on Highbridge Road. That statistic actually broke my heart and blew my mind to think about how these poor women were underground in this house that so many people passed by every day, completely unaware of what mm -hmm. was going on inside. Like, this is not a secluded house. Like, right. this is in a very exactly traveled area. John was arrested and charged with kidnapping, rape, and sodomy. He faced five 25-year maximum sentences for just the kidnapping charges if he lost at trial. His lawyer spent days explaining to him the gravity of his charges and the fact that what he did was considered kidnapping. John didn't believe that he had actually kidnapped any of these women. He said that kidnapping is when you pick someone out, grab them, and threaten to kill them for ransom money. Oh, so just because he didn't ask for ransom, that's that's why it wasn't kidnapping? Correct. Right. Yep. John actually thought that he had relationships with these women, and he just felt that he was more likely to avoid any STDs by keeping the women in the bunker just for him. Yeah, his argument was probably, oh, well, they didn't leave, so they must have liked it. Right, right. Right, because they couldn't. Yeah, <laughs> and he actually believed that the sex he was having with them paid for their room and board, and that it was all transactional. So he was he was doing them a favor. He must not think very highly of his sex. <laughs> to, pay, yeah. to pay for that. Exactly. The, to pay for those, those conditions. Digs. Exactly. Um, so, and that's why he never killed them. Because it was all transactional. That actually, so back to the debate, if he's delusional, well, he's definitely delusional, but yeah. whether he believed things or not, 
that actually makes me think he really believed all of that because that was my question in the beginning. Why right. was he letting them go when they clearly had a story to tell and it could potentially get him caught unless he knew who he was taking and that he had taken the measures enough that no one would believe them and they wouldn't be able to find him. I, I can't decide. He definitely was taking vulnerable women, mm-hmm. um, teenage runaways, uh, you know, foreigners who couldn't mm-hmm. speak English well, drug addicts. But I just, you have to know at some point, if you're not killing them, you're going to get caught. I mean, even if you are killing them, like you probably are still going to get caught at some right. point, but you, you have to know that someone is going to overcome their fear of ratting you out and rat you out. Maybe, but it also could come back to his just God complex and power and just thinking that he's, he can outsmart them and he wouldn't get caught because right. he's been smart. So I don't know. Or he's really that fucked up and just thinks it's all fine. It, that's also possible. He did him a favor. Ugh. They're better off for it. That's what he thinks. Despite his delusional thinking, Psychologists determined that he was competent to stand trial. Good. But John ultimately decided he would be better off striking a plea deal, which thankfully saved his victims from having to relive their experiences in court. That's true. John pleaded guilty to five counts of first-degree kidnapping. In July 2003, at his sentencing, several of the victims had their victim impact statements read in court. Oof, that just gave me goosebumps, too. We'll get ready. Kirsten said, I am haunted every moment, even in sleep. By the thought of my months with Mr. Jamalski, the cold, dampness, darkness, and loneliness. I will never forget the constant hunger, thirst, and fatigue, the thought of death. I cannot speak of the terrible things he did to my body and made me do to his. When I think of the things I have had to do just to stay alive, I cannot believe I'm still here. Chills. It's full, full chills. Jennifer said, I've lived my life for two years knowing that sick old man has existed and has done to other girls what he has done to me. I have lived in fear ever since. John Jamelski is a sick and evil old man and should be punished. He has no right to take away my freedom, my right to breathe fresh air, or my right to be treated like a human being. He made my children think I was dead. That hurts more than everything else in the whole world. They had to endure pain, so let his punishment be swift and just. Maybe then I will at least be able to sleep at night. Micah said, I almost gave up hope when you brought my clothes to me in a million shredded pieces, telling me that these people trained those dogs to go after my scent. I felt completely stripped down to nothing. You will never be able to know the fear I felt being raped every day, sometimes three times a day. The nightmares I have, remembering how I had to fulfill your sick fantasies, making disgusting videos, being humiliated, never having any privacy, not even to use the toilet or the shower, being chained to a fence like a dog. I hope with time I will be able to forget the horrifying sex you forced me to have day after day after day, relentless, for six and a half long months, never leaving me alone, not for one day. You're the sickest man I've ever known. I hope you die in a cold cement cell like you wanted us to do. Oof. I still have chills oh, to read it. Yeah. It's so I had to, I had to read them yeah. because they're so impactful. They are. And the judge was mad at how passive John looked at his sentencing, even hearing these statements. He said, you're a sick coward. You're an evil man. You're a kidnapper and a rapist and a master manipulator of people and the truth. You took your American dream and turned it into a nightmare for these five women. Your reign of terror is over. 
The judge said, Mr. Jamalski, there is no question in my mind that you should die in prison for what you've done to these five women. I'm literally pumping my fist right now because that is everything I want to say. Yes. John was sentenced to 18 years to life. And as part of the plea deal, he agreed that his investments would be liquidated and split between the five victims as compensation. And any money made on book deals or TV deals would also go to the victims. His estimated worth was between two and eight million dollars. Wow. Obviously not not any amount of money in the world no. worth doing anything like that, but I'm glad he didn't get to keep it. Right. Yep. John's attorney felt 18 years was a bit much, but the state argued it wasn't enough. I agree. And again, I feel it's worth reading these longer quotes because the people involved have put it so eloquently. Mm-hmm. The state's attorney said, the irony is that the cell he will live in for the next 18 years and probably for the rest of his natural life was far more adequate, will be far more comfortable, will have far many greater creature comforts than is the hellhole that he kept his victims for so long a period of time. And I truly believe, Judge, that that parole board will see this defendant for exactly what he is and never let him see the light of day. John has shown no remorse for his crimes based upon things that he has said after the fact. In an interview with Dateline in 2004, John said again he didn't think his crimes were that serious. He literally thought he was going to get community service for, quote, a little bit of unlawful imprisonment or whatever, is what he said. I don't think my eyes could get any bigger. No. He was dismissive of complaints about keeping the women chained by their ankles since some people wear ankle bracelets all day long. Like, what I, What world are you living in, sir? John first came up for parole in December 2020 after having served 17 years. In his interview with the board, thankfully, he clearly conveyed that he still had not taken responsibility for his actions and still did not understand the true depravity of his crimes. He said that someone had approached him about one of his victims who was a runaway and apparently said it would be better for her to be with him than on the streets. He also said that things weren't really that bad in the bunker. He provided bubble baths, scented candles, and that the shower was very private. He said the foam mattress they had to sleep on in the dungeon was very comfortable and that he had slept on it before. And his parole was denied. Good. Oh, (laughs) good. John was actually up again for parole last month, December 2022, to which the state was again opposed. The prosecutor noted that people only talk about rehabilitation and that people say, oh, well, this guy's in his mid-80s. He's not going to do it again. Just let him out. The prosecutor said that another goal of incarceration is retribution Mm -hmm. and his victims deserve retribution. Absolutely. There was no updated information online as to whether his parole was granted or denied. I saw that the parole board was supposed to make a decision by December 24th, 2022, but there were no updated articles after that. As of this week, I did find him on the New York inmate search website and Mm -hmm. he's still listed as an inmate, but he has a parole interview scheduled for March, 2023. And I'm not exactly sure what that means. My concern is that I believe the articles I read about his possible parole in December, 2020, it said I believe it said that he would be eligible for release in April. So I'm afraid that because he had an interview in December, that it's a possible interview for his release in April. Mm. But I really don't know. Um, And I'm going to keep an eye on it. And I will post an update if something pops up. But hopefully his parole was denied again. Because I hope so. Just let him just let him die in prison. Absolutely. And he sucks. I don't care if he's 80. He definitely would go and do 
worse probably. He's 87. Yeah. Oh, wow. So he's I mean, yeah. Still, I I don't know. It just yeah, I I the rehabilitation like sure he's not a risk to society anymore probably cuz he's 87, mm. but again, the retribution aspect of yep. it like you need to be punished and you don't yep. accept that what you did was wrong and you really right. suck and you ruined these five women's lives. Like I I think about and I feel like this discussion has been had before somewhere, but I do think it, obviously it's wonderful that he didn't murder these women, but these women have to go on and live with this. He ruined, he ruined their lives. They'll never have the exactly. life that they were going to have before. It's certainly, it certainly is better than death. I'm not saying he should have killed them. And I'm not saying that they wish that they were dead, but I'm just saying like I, the resilience of these victims mm-hmm. blows my mind. Mm-hmm. And I said before, I could not like writing these notes i could not even for a second put myself mentally in their position to think about what i would do because it is it's too much and i don't think that you actually could predict how you would react in that situation of course not i just i i am completely with you on that he needs to stay in jail and i hear you on all right fine 87 although i just don't think he should be out and not able to do anything but the slap in the face that it would be to those women if he were released, he just, he can't, he can't do it. They can't do it. I know because not, maybe he's not a threat to them anymore, but it will ruin their sense of security. Right. The small, and he called them at work. Right. An 87 year old can make calls. Right. Right. You know, that's what I'm saying. I don't think he's, I think he would be, especially because he doesn't think any of it's wrong. Right. He probably would still do it. So I'm sure, again, their lives are completely changed and I'm sure they're still terrified of walking and cars slowing Mm -hmm. down near them and stuff like that. But they must have had at least a shred of security with Mm -hmm. him being behind bars, knowing that he could not do it again. So I think it it would, I agree with you, a slap in the face if they let him go. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, he's 87. Just let him die in prison. Mm -hmm. Like, just... That's it, he got 18 years to life. Just let him have his yeah. life sentence and and be done with it because he yeah. sucks and does not. You think in December 2020 he didn't appreciate his crimes, but now he does. Two years later, yeah, after serving 17 years, no. no. If he does now, he's just lying. Exactly, he's which is surprising. Surprising me that he's not lying, but keep it going. That's fine. Yeah. Did they did they demolish the house and the basement? Do you know? Not according to Google Images. They did destroy the dungeon. Okay. And before they destroyed the dungeon, they I believe they let some reporters down there Ugh. to take pictures because there's pictures of it. I guess that makes sense, but you could not pay me any amount of money to even look in there. Yeah. Unless I'm making that up and it's just from the police photos, but there are definitely photos of the dungeon. Yeah. And I want to say that I read somewhere that they let reporters down wow. there. So yeah, my understanding is that the dungeon was destroyed, but okay. the house is still standing. Wow. So... I mean, I guess if you're living in the house, it's not like if a murder was like happened in there, it happened in like a separate underground thing, but still like, I was more thinking, what would he leave and come back to, you know, all his assets are gone too. So what has he got? One of his kids would have to take him in. And he could had kids. Yeah. That's right. He could go back to collecting bottles and cans, I guess. Wow. But I mean, 80, 87, he spent 18, 19 years in prison. He's probably not in the best physical right. peak condition. Wow. So yeah, hopefully his parole is denied. Like I said, I'll keep an eye on it because yeah. I didn't see anything updated. So Crazy. hoping no news is good news, right. but we'll see. Or they're just trying to keep it under wraps because they don't want the wrath of the public if his parole was granted. Wow. That, yeah, 
<laughs> Sorry, I don't even want to think about that possibility. Yeah, we'll find out. The only thing that's making me nervous is that notation on the website mm-hmm. that says his, he has a parole interview in March because previously when his parole was denied, they said his next hearing was in two years. So <sighs> I don't, I just don't know what that signifies because I'm Unless not familiar with New maybe, York's. Maybe he was scheduled. Did he, do you know enough detail that he had the hearing in December 22 or is that just when it was supposed to be and was he like sick or something and had to delay it? I don't know. I think he had it. Oh. I think he did have it. And of course, I was trying I was trying to ask my husband all these questions about like New York inmates. And he's like, I don't know anything. Of, anything <laughs> I don't work there. I don't know, I don't know anything. Does. I don't know. That's not my job. Yeah. So we're just in suspense until the reporters pick it up, I guess. <sighs> but so that was the story of the Dungeon Master of Syracuse, Oof. which, by the way, was Heavy. actually supposed to be a mini to <laughs> part of a, another case. And it turned into a full episode because they were just it just was fucked up. I had to include everything I could find on it. I'm glad you did uh, and not. But I'm glad because it just it gave the full picture of, yeah. of that monster. You're equally happy and horrified. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Usually how that. we want to leave you with Grim. You ha- know? Happy and horrified. Yeah. Yeah. If you're enjoying listening to Grim, <laughs> please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. You can find our page on Facebook by searching Grim colon a true crime podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to Patreon and search Grim colon a true crime podcast. I think you're probably sensing a theme here. <laughs> follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion like someone did for this insane case or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim.